Children may be dismissed to junior church at this time. So children may make their way to junior church at this time. And we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to um, introduce the passage here for just a moment first uh, with a few thoughts. Um, D. James Kennedy once said, There are three kinds of people in this world. Those who can count and those who can't. I'll let that sink in for a minute. There are three kinds of people in this world, those who can count and those who cannot. I'm among those who cannot count, but I meant that by way of humor. I'll let you think about it. Humor can light up a room, can't it? Yes, thank you. We can break tension with humor. Thanks for always answering my rhetorical questions, Craig. I appreciate that. Just remember to smile. We can break tension with humor, can't we? I have served in many church and some community boards uh, in multiple cities, including Cincinnati, Alliance here uh, in the Youngstown area. And I've seen it when there comes, you know, you have a certain person on a board or committee, a, a team, and they don't take themselves seriously. Maybe they smile and choke around a little bit and they just light up the room. They, they break the tension in any meeting. It makes the meeting from being stressful to being more enjoyable and more fun. I've served other times where there's this, uh, other people that take themselves very seriously and maybe are extremely uh, thin-skinned, easily offended, rightfully or wrongfully, very judgmental, and the meetings are not the same. Humor can light up a room. Humor can change a meeting. Humor can break down other people's defenses. I read about this in a book on small groups a long time ago where a a particular person who was in business talked about using humor to try to break down somebody else's defenses in order to get a business deal. She did get the business deal, but she did not realize whether it worked or not. And it was a business deal with a, with a billionaire, really, until years and years, of, and years later when she seen that same billionaire again. And he commented on the humor that she used in her business dealings and how it broke down the defenses and she got the business deal. How do we deal with difficult people? We're in a sermon series dealing with life's difficulties, life's difficulties. And how do we, and today comes with, these are questions that you submitted. So today's question, how do we deal with difficult people? How do we respond to difficult people? Now, when people ask me that question, what what always goes through my head is, who are the difficult people and what makes us think that we're not the difficult person? We might easily be saying, how do we deal with this person who's difficult? And they might be saying, how do we deal with him? He's difficult. My theme today is that we respond to difficult people in love. We respond to difficult people in love. And that's why we go to the love chapter. 
in the Bible, the love chapter. And in the Pew Bibles, it's page 902, 902 in the Pew Bibles, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. You're welcome to turn in your own Bibles or scroll on your own devices. Uh, I'll be reading from the ESV, and you could read from a translation that, that you prefer. That's certainly fine. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to focus on verses 4 through 7. And I want to make the case, drive the point home. We respond to difficult people in love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is, it, 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 um, is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We're going to reread this passage here in a few minutes and consult it throughout this whole sermon. So I encourage you to stay right there in your Bibles and so you can keep looking down. I have 12 applications. 12 applications. I will read them and then reread them while talking about the passage with respect to each application. So I'm going to read all the applications and then we're going to go back to the application and talk about each one. So you hear all the applications twice. When dealing with difficult people, we must be patient. We see that in verse 4. When dealing with difficult people, we must be kind. Be kind. We see that in verse 4. This means that we always extend grace and love and support. We must be Jesus to them. When dealing with difficult people, we must not envy or boast. Verse 4, we must be humble. So the first two, we're saying what we are to do, and now this one's uh, saying what we are not to do. We are not to envy or boast. When dealing with difficult people, we must not be arrogant, verse 4. Again, we must be humble. Maybe we are the difficult person. When dealing with difficult people, we must not be rude, verse 4. No, we must go back to the previous verse and be kind and patient. When dealing with difficult people, we must not insist on our own way. Verse 5. Is it possible that they are difficult because we are insisting on our own way? No, we must live out Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, and consider others more important than ourselves. When dealing with difficult people, we must not be irritable or resentful. Verse 5. That could make it all the worse, couldn't it? Again, being loving means that we are not resentful. We are not irritable. If we are irritable, we are likely to be difficult. When dealing with difficult people, we must not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. Verse 6. This means we want good things for them. We, we do not want them to fail. We, we do not want them to be more difficult. No, we want the best for them. When dealing with difficult people, we must bear all things, verse 7. This means that love covers sins and protects believers from further harm. When dealing with difficult people, we must believe all things, verse 7. This means that we give them the benefit of the doubt. We give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's believe the best. We are, we, are, we are not automatically suspicious of them. We are not automatically suspicious of them. Two more applications. When dealing with difficult people, 
We must hope in all things, verse 7. Hope in all things. Do we hope the best for them? When dealing with difficult people, we must endure all things, verse 7. We do whatever we can to preserve the relationship and for sure to preserve the faith. I want to talk about each of those. They come right out of the passage. But first I want to put the passage in context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul introduces spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have the purpose of spiritual gifts. The purpose of spiritual gifts. Therefore, the community of the church. The spiritual gifts are not for an individual, but the community of the church. And then we come to 1 Corinthians 13. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we have the motivation of spiritual gifts. The motivation of spiritual gifts is love. That's the motivation behind spiritual gifts is loving one another. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we have the use of spiritual gifts. So 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, the purpose of spiritual gifts, the purpose. 1 Corinthians 13, the motivation, which is love. 1 Corinthians 14, the uh, use, the use of the spiritual gifts. So right between two chapters dealing with spiritual gifts, we have a chapter on love. This passage is written to a divided church. We see in 1 Corinthians 11 that they were getting drunk at communion. Paul even says, don't you have homes to drink in? See also 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 and 21. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, we see Paul write about their divisions. They were, they were divided over dietary laws. They were divided over authority. They were divided over which apostle to follow. They were not living in communion. They were not living as a community. They were living with divisions. And they were even divided over spiritual gifts. And they were even divided over worship. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13 and 14, actually further, 1 Corinthians chapters 11, 12 and 13 and 14 are about worship and the use of the spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Something as sacred as worship brought divisions. I've never heard of that happening in the church across America, have you? The devil wants to seek and to lie and to destroy and to divide. And Paul writes this love chapter right in the middle of chapters dealing with worship, right in the middle of church chapters dealing with spiritual gifts. It's not written in the section dealing with marriage. You could go back to 1 Corinthians 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has this very long chapter about marriage. He didn't put the love section there. He put it in a section, this section on love. Remember, there were no chapters and verses originally. So even though I say chapter, I'm taking that loosely. This section dealing with love, he he placed it right in between a section dealing with worship and spiritual gifts and being guided by the Holy Spirit. I believe that 1 Corinthians 13, this section, these are great instructions on how to deal with difficult people. The first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, which I did not read, but the first three verses introduce the subject of love. He's saying that love is the most important thing. 
When he mentions the tongues of angels, some think he is writing about an angelic language. Others think he is just using hyperbole. It is, is, it is as if he is saying, even if I can speak with angels, without love, it is unintelligible. And then we get to verses 4 through 7. By the way, none of us are perfect with this. We all must seek the Holy Spirit, seek the Lord, try our best to follow the Lord. And when we mess up, we need to be the bigger person and humbly apologize and repent and ask for forgiveness. When I first came to Bethel Friends, there was an administrative council meeting. The first one was very fun. The second one was fun as well. But, but somebody said something that he regretted afterwards. And he called me the next morning at like 6.30 a.m. Oftentimes when I get calls at that time, I think, oh, no. But it wasn't a no, no. It was a positive thing. This older gentleman said he regretted what he said and he wanted to convene the administrative council to apologize. And we did that. That's the way we should respond. Humbly apologize when we mess up. Let's read those verses again. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It it is not irritable or resentful. It, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He is modifying love. When dealing with difficult people, we must be patient, verse 4. Love is patient, isn't it? That means we give grace. Try to see it from their perspective. Try to remember that sometimes you may be the difficult person. This is, and, and by the way, this, these verses are applicable whether you're the difficult person, whether the other person is a difficult person, or maybe many times you're both a difficult person <laughs> or people. It's applicable. If the church could follow these instructions, I think we, many, many, many more people would want to be Christians. Jesus said they will know you by your love for one another. And we have quotes from people in the first and second century, people who were against the church. And he talked about the love of the body of Christ. And yet oftentimes we're not known for that today. Love is patient. These are all verbs in the Greek. They're adjectives in English, but they're verbs in the Greek. So adjectives modify nouns. Adjectives modify nouns. Verbs are action words, you know, to run, to jump, to hide, to to play. These are verbs in the Greek. Love is patient. It's an action, which it's it's hard to think of being patient as an action, but, but it is a verb in the Greek. One church father, John Chrysostom, shared long-tempered. Sometimes patient is literally translated long-tempered. Think about that, long-tempered. You're not, you're not quick with a temper, you know? Long-tempered is used to one who is wrong and has the power to avenge themselves but won't. Think about that with patience. Do you have the power to avenge yourself but won't? You choose not to. You choose not to respond. You choose not to defend yourself. You choose not to argue. You choose not to. You're patient. And it's always difficult. When should we defend ourselves? When should we argue? 
Some people would say they don't like to argue. Well, we have to define terms. Does argue mean to just discuss or is argue meaning when it becomes a quarrel and it becomes divisive and it becomes offensive? Because if argue means I don't like to discuss, then you should never make a proposition. You should never propose something. You should never say something as simple like, you know, the Browns are the greatest football team this year because somebody's going to respond. And if you don't want to hear a response, don't say anything. Otherwise, you're going to have a response, and that response could be a discussion where the other person says, no, I think the Steelers are better or the Colts or pick your team, you know, and it could become so hostile and so when it shouldn't be, right? We should be able to discuss, and we should be able to defend our claim. We should be able to say, no, I defend my claim about such and such while being patient and not getting angry, but if it becomes personal and angry... It's probably better not to, unless you absolutely have to for some other reason. When dealing with difficult people, we must be kind, verse 4. So the first one, be patient, now it's kind. This means that we always extend grace and love and support. We must be Jesus to them. Love is friendly and helpful, kind, friendly and helpful. How can we extend grace? No matter what, how can we extend grace? Even if somebody's angry with us, mean to us, making personal attacks, how can we extend grace? Grace is giving somebody what they don't deserve. God gave us what we don't deserve. Did you realize that? Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. We didn't deserve it. So next time, maybe we should think, God gave me grace. How can I give grace and kindness and love and compassion and support to somebody else, whether they deserve it or not? Love is friendly and helpful. Again, remember, we need others to be kind to us, right? Have you ever received something that you did not deserve? Have you ever had somebody be kind to you, whether, whether you deserved it or not? Chuck Swindoll shared, the word for kind is used for aged wine that has been mellowed. When Jesus said, my yoke is easy, easy is the same root word as kind. When dealing with difficult people, we must not envy or boast, verse 4. We must not envy or boast. We must not. So before we heard love is patient, love is kind. Now these are things not to do. We do not envy. We're not to be envious. We're not to boast. We must be humble. Why do we always feel the need to one-up ourselves, to make ourselves look better, even at the expense of someone else. Now, there are times when we need to defend ourselves because we need people to recognize our authority in a certain position in a business situation, or even as a dad or a grandfather, or whatever it might be. And that's a little different. Sometimes it's trivial. It doesn't really matter. There's no reason that we have to defend ourselves. When dealing with difficult people, we must not be envious. We must not be boastful. We must be humble. Humble. Envy will say jealous in some translations. Again, Chuck Swindoll shares, is not jealous has the idea of holding people loosely without suspicion. How, how, how much of a difference would, would that make? Why do we get suspicious of others? Love does not brag. This means it does not call attention to itself. Number four, when dealing with difficult people, we must not be arrogant. Again, from verse four. Again, be humble. Humility. 
Again, remember that maybe we're the difficult person from the other side. I know I've shared that three times now. A lot of these take humility. Do, do we ever pray for humility? Some would say don't pray for certain things like patience or humility because you won't want what God brings your way. And I think that doesn't mean we don't pray for it. We may not enjoy what God brings our way, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary. Long time ago, I was driving to college and I was listening to folks in the family and they had parents on talking about something and they said, oftentimes we pray for our children to have a good day. But maybe they don't need a good day. God knows what we need. God knows what our children need. God knows what our grandchildren need. And we need those trials and tribulations to build us up. Don't be arrogant. We must be humble. A lot of times that humility does come with difficulties. When dealing with difficult people, we must not be rude. We must not be rude. Now we're into verse five. No, we must go back to the previous verse and be kind and be patient. Instead of being rude, be kind, be patient. How can we respond differently? How can, how can we be an encourager instead of a discourager? How can we build them up instead of bringing them down? We must not be rude. Think of how many Christians can cuss without using cuss words. Tim Hawkins has this little video you can find online of Christian cuss words. <laughs> it's quite a list. No, don't do that. We can be rude, right? This means we do not interrupt. This means we are not unreasonably suspicious of others, which I brought up before and will bring up again. Let's aim that we are not the difficult person. We can't control how they act. We can't control how they treat us. We can control how we treat them. When dealing with difficult people, we must not insist on our own way, verse 5. We must not insist on our own way. Is it possible that they are difficult because we are so insistent on our own way? No, we need to live out Philippians 2, 3, and 4 and consider others more important than ourselves. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says to look out for the needs of others before your own. But actually before that, in Philippians 2, 3, it says consider others more important than yourselves. It starts with a mindset, an others-focused mindset. I'm not the most important person. They are. When dealing with difficult people, we must not be irritable or resentful, verse 5. Don't be irritable. Don't be resentful. That, that could make it all the worse, right? If we're irritable, if we are resentful, it just builds it up. It just brings attention up. But if, if we take ourselves lightly and we take this situation lightly, if we can bring a smile and bring humor, it totally changes things. Again, being loving means that we are not resentful. We are not irritable. If we are irritable, we are likely difficult. I read the following. This comes from uh, John MacArthur. He says, the great 18th century preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, this is the mid-1700s, one of the leaders of the Great Awakening. If you've ever read the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that was Jonathan Edwards. Although most of his sermons were not that, you know, that, not that harsh. But Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had a daughter with an uncontrollable temper. When a young man asked Dr. Edwards for his daughter's hand in marriage, he said No. The young man was crushed. But I love her and she loves me, he pleaded. Edwards responded, that makes no difference. She isn't worthy of you. But, but she is a Christian, isn't she? The young man argued. Yes, said Edwards. 
But the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. That may seem harsh, but Jonathan Edwards knew what his would-be son-in-law hadn't yet learned. The presence of selfish anger indicates the absence of genuine love. The presence of selfish anger indicates the absence of genuine love. Love, said the Apostle Paul, is not provoked. It is not given to sudden outburst of emotion or action. It doesn't respond in anger to offenses committed against it. So in dealing with difficult people, we must not be irritable or resentful. That means not easily provoked. Next one. When dealing with difficult people, we must not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. And this gets really, really important. This means we want good things. We do not want them to fail. We do not want them to be more difficult. No, we want the best. We want the best for them. This may mean that we are not thin-skinned. We're not rejoicing at wrongdoing. We're not keeping a record of the wrongs committed against us. We're rejoicing with the truth. We, we do not hold a grudge. We do not hold a grudge. And, and I don't know about you. This keeps coming through my mind even as I go through this message. This passage is so convicting. It is so challenging. And it is so important. When dealing with difficult people, we must bear all things, verse 7. This means that love covers sins and protects. It bears. It, it covers sins and protects. It covers sins and protects believers from further harm. We protect. We want the best. Love it bears all things. We want the best. When dealing with difficult people, we must believe all things. These are similar items. This means we give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's believe the best. We are not automatically suspicious. We look at a situation and we know what somebody's doing. Can we think, I may not agree with what they're doing. I may not agree with what they're saying. I may vehemently disagree. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say their motivation is good. I'm going to say we all want the same thing, the best for the church or the business or the society. I'm not going to make a personal attack. I'm going to keep my disagreements civil. I'm going to keep my disagreements about the issues at hand and not a personal attack. Making a personal, uh, personal attack is called the ad hominem fallacy. Ad hominem fallacy. That means in an argument, you're making a personal attack rather than dealing with the substance of the argument. Politicians do it all the time and they do it quite effectively. But so do you and I. We think we can take it to a higher level if we can make a personal attack. No, it doesn't take it to a higher level. It, it, it takes it to a more divisive level. No, give them the benefit of the doubt. Believe all things. Believe all things. Want the best for the other person. That's what love does. Don't be automatically suspicious. Number 11, when dealing with difficult people, we must hope in all things. Hope in all things. Do we want the best? It kind of goes along with believing all things. Do we want the best? Do we hope for the best? If you apply this to people in your church family or your biological family, whom hopefully you love, you want the best for them. You don't want them to fail. Oftentimes we want them to fail so we can be right. Yeah, you go your way. You're going to come back crawling on your hands and knees. No, hopefully we want the best for them. 
MacArthur shares an interesting illustration. Hope is illustrated in the true story of a dog who was abandoned at the airport of a large city. The poor dog stayed there for five years waiting for his master to return. People at the airport fed and cared for him, but he refused to leave the spot where he last saw his master. If a dog's love for his master can produce that kind of hope, how much more should your love for God produce abiding hope? I was rehearsing the message and Mercedes overheard me and came in and interrupted and I kept going and she kept waiting patiently and she said, did the dog find his master? I don't know. That's all I know. But it does say five years, so that does assume an endpoint. So either the dog died or the dog found his master. But it's still an illustration of hope. When dealing with difficult people, we must endure all things. Verse 7. Endure all things. We must do whatever we can to preserve the relationship. And for sure, preserve the faith. Love endures. Oftentimes, love is a choice. We're in a marriage, and we may not feel like loving today, or maybe we don't even, we're having a dispute with our children, adult or, children, or, or young children, and we don't feel like loving, but you choose to love because you know that is what's best for the marriage, for the relationship, for each other. And even more than that is what God calls us to do. Love endures. And I've heard testimonies, and I'm sure you have as well, of love that has endured, love that has endured difficult times. And they give testimonies of how their marriage went through a really difficult time, unimaginably difficult time, but it endured. And it was a testimony to the rest. Heard a study a long time ago through folks in the family that the first nine or eight years of a marriage, intimacy goes down. You're learning to live together. You're maybe you have children. You have more stress. But after 32 years, you're closer together than you ever were. You have a family together. It's worth enduring. And I think it's the same thing in, in church relationships. Many of you have known each other so long. That's a good thing to have those long-lasting friendship, love, friendships. Love is worth enduring. So I think those are good instructions for dealing with difficult people. I don't think we can get any better instructions. They're from God's words. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, and this is in his book, The Four Loves, uh, to love at all is to be vulnerable. You ever think about that? To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Think about that. And these are our instructions for dealing with difficult people. I referenced this last week and I want to reference it again. Jordan Peterson is a Canadian psychologist 
And he's not a Christian, though I think he's on the fence, maybe getting there, and maybe someday he will. Uh, he's worth listening to, and I highly commend uh, his writings to you. And he gave an, an example in teaching of active listening. He said, next time you're in an argument with your spouse or with your children or, or with a coworker, respond, pause. Oftentimes the argument gets heated, and we're no longer responding to the actual propositions. We're responding to other things. They go way off. Way off in left field, you know. Jeff Foxworthy says the great thing about marriage is once you're done arguing with each other, you can bring your in-laws into the argument, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you're no longer dealing with the initial argument. So he says pause and respond to the other person's argument. Like restate it. Don't respond, sorry. Restate the other person's argument in your own words. But respond to their argument. Not I'm messing it up, sorry. But restate it better. Restate their argument better than they said it. That's another way of dealing with difficult people. Try to see it totally from their perspective. Try to restate what they want, what they desire, what their argument is, and restate it better. If you are making their argument that the Browns are the best football team ever, or whatever it might be, restate their argument. Build up their case. And then you can actually debate and discuss things. Let's close in prayer. Dearly Father, I pray that you would help and support us. We all deal with difficult people from time to time. And sometimes, maybe more often than not, we are the difficult person. And we need grace as much as others need grace. We all need grace. We all need love. We all need support. We all need to give love and we all need to receive love. From the time we are born, we need love. We need grace. We need mercy. We need it. So, Lord God, this passage, this subject is so very, very important. Because whether or not somebody here present listening to this message or not present listening to this message, whether or not they are right now dealing with difficult people, we all need to strive and to pray that you would help us be patient. Help us be kind. Help us, Lord God, not be envious or boastful. Help us to live out this passage, Lord God. Help us not to be arrogant or rude. Help us to not insist on our own way. Help us to not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. Help us to bear all things. Help us to believe all things. Help us to hope in all things. Help us to endure all things. And when we mess up, and Lord God, we will, because we're still in a fallen world, help us to humbly apologize and ask for forgiveness. Help us to love you with all of our being and love our neighbors ourselves and recognize even our enemy as our neighbor, as you told in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God has laid anything on your heart. It could be from this message.